against discrimination, to the right to equal pay, to the right to strike. All these rights were won through protest. Throughout the spring, hundreds of thousands of people across the country marched, signed petitions and spoke out against the catchily titled Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill. Critics say the bill would curb our freedom of speech and assembly by giving the police new powers to crack down on protest. The bill was successfully delayed, but it's due to resurface in Parliament next week. Whilst this bill might be held up as containing measures to address violence against women and girls, in reality it lays out measures which undermine our right to hold power to account. Because that policing bill was conceived by the Home Secretary who wanted to look tough about people toppling statues of slave traders. Concerns about this bill are multiple, aren't they? There's the content of the bill, then there's the timing of the bill, and then there's all the other attendant issues that the bill represents, the bigger picture that it points us toward. So, what's actually in the police bill? How will it affect black and other people of colour? And why is the government pushing it through Parliament now? There are other areas of serious concern in this bill. I mean, first of all, in respect of the potential for stop and search to be expanded. The other aspect of the bill that's really concerning is the proposal that police may have more power to enforce against unauthorised encampments. And what that really means is that Gypsy, Roma and Traveller communities may face more police harassment simply for going about their day-to-day lives. Welcome to the Weekly Economics podcast. In this episode, we're asking, are the government cracking down on our right to protest? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. This week, I'm pleased to be joined down the line by Zara Hassan, barrister and founding member and director of Black Protest Legal Support. Hi, Zara. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being with us. And I'm also really excited to be joined down the line by Becca Hudson, PhD researcher at UCL and Birkbeck and criminal justice campaigner. Hi, Becca. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Brill, let's let's dive in then. So as always, let's start with the basics. For anyone who doesn't know, Zara, can you explain what's in the police crime sentencing and courts bill? Bloody that's a mouthful. When it comes to restricting protest, what are we talking? Yeah, of course. So I would say the starting point is really what does the law currently say about protests? And it's important to remember that the police already have considerable power, which they enforce all the time to limit protests and demonstrations. There are already provisions that mean that people need to notify the police in advance of planned marches and lots of other ways that the police can impose conditions on protests if they believe it may result in serious public disorder or serious damage to property. And what this bill does is it basically seeks to extend these powers in an extremely wide way, which means that it would entirely devastate the right to protest. And I think there are three main ways that the bill seeks to do this. So the first is it uses very broad language within the legislation to criminalise different aspects of protest, more so than already exists. And that leaves very wide scope for interpretation by institutionally racist police and courts. 
Secondly, it affords a lot more power to the police to restrict protests. And thirdly, there are very harsh carceral punishments which it meters out for its proposed new offences. So some examples of those three things. Um, So the bill would enable conditions to be imposed on marches and static protests where noise generated could result in intimidation or harassment or cause serious unease, alarm or distress to bystanders. It would also widen the conditions police can impose on static protests, such as police chiefs being able to impose a start and finish time and even set noise limits, including to demonstrations involving just one person. And it could also mean that police impose conditions to prevent a wide range of circumstances, including impact or disruption. And it also leaves decision making to senior police officers. And it also lowers the legal threshold, which would mean a protester has breached a condition. So at the moment, a protester has to know that the breach occurred. So the language is knowingly. But the bill would change this to the fact that they ought to have known that the condition had been enforced. And then there's also a a new offence of public nuisance. So that's about where someone's act or omission causes serious harm to the public or a section of the public. And an act or omission is defined in very vague terms, including where someone could suffer serious annoyance or serious inconvenience. And a person guilty of that offence is liable to a maximum of 10 years imprisonment. So all of these aspects, I think, very clearly show that the bill just really widens the scope for criminalising protesters. It widens the scope for the police to limit protests. And the terms are so vague that obviously it provides no certainty and it can just be interpreted however courts and police want to interpret it. So that's why I think everyone is so clear that this is a total affront to the right to protest. Super useful intro. Thanks so much, Sarah. So I want to go into a bit more detail in a second on how this bill will impact different groups of people differently. But just to come to you, Becca, before we do that, carrying on from um, what Sarah was saying, will this bill essentially only make certain forms of protest, which arguably are the more ineffective forms of protest, legal and legitimate and kind of exile all the others? I mean, I certainly think that's a possible outcome of it. But even as Zara touched on, the kinds of protests which are currently considered to be legitimate and acceptable are themselves already subject to quite heavy restrictions. And if you compare the UK to other countries across the world, the kind of restrictions that are in place for protesting here are already quite heavy. So we're looking at an ever shrinking space for dissent. And obviously, if you think about it from the angle of anybody who has ever attended a protest or had to organize any kind of disruptive action or campaigning around something that's been going on in their life or in their community's life or something that they care about, more often than not, the kinds of campaigns that are effective are ones which are disruptive and which are annoying. And so it's narrowing a space in which people are able to kind of voice dissent, are able to gather and talk about the kind of causes that they want to fight for. And it means that in an already heavily restricted space, that space is so much narrower where this bill to go through that I think a lot of people would certainly be very frightened about going out to protest, considering the kind of criminal sanctions they might receive. And you know, may become very afraid if they're organizing protests and not feel that they're able to speak out about the kinds of things that they would want to. 
Um, so it certainly narrows that space for what we know is the most effective, which is disruptive, which is annoying, even if it's only one person protesting. Mm, as you say, it seems to be a bill which aims to work across various different measures, like from kind of censorship and deterring folks at one end right through to criminalizing and penalizing folks much more extremely on the other. So let's talk about specific groups then. In terms of how the bill will affect Black and other people of color, Zara, you've talked about this um, in other spaces. What do we need to be aware of here in terms of how the bill is going to affect Black and people of color? Yeah, well, I think that the key thing is that this will not only have a chilling effect, but it will also have a racist effect. And that's because we know that whenever the police have more powers, it will always most sharply impact black, brown and other racialized communities. And that is something that we already see. We have already seen. So black protest legal support, our legal observers have been at protests over the last year. And we've seen the most heavy use of police violence at BLM protests and at the recent Free Palestine protests. And that is no coincidence, obviously. And we also know that when the police have more power, they're more likely to act with brutality on the ground. And that's something that we've seen historically. But what we're seeing already is as a result of uh, the COVID regulations, which in my view kind of act as a blueprint for how this bill would operate, because the COVID regulations are very broad. It's enabled the police to restrict protests in a very draconian way. The way that the police have acted under that legislation and the way that the police have acted since the fact of this bill has come to light towards black and brown and racialized protesters shows that it would become even worse if this bill became law. We've seen the police use riot gear, routinely, physically and verbally intimidate protesters. We saw horse charges at BLM protests last summer. We've seen police use batons against Tamil communities protesting in Harrow. We've seen people very severely injured at Free Palestine protests recently, and the police using derogatory um, and Islamophobic comments to intimidate people. And we also know that the police, you know, kind of beyond the protest sphere, are more likely to use force against black people. And we also know that any police power will only worsen violence uh, against these communities at protests. We also know that where people are criminalised or there's a chance of arrest, that is again going to more sharply impact black, brown and racialized people. And then we also know that there's obviously disproportionate sentencing in the criminal justice system. So we know that out of everyone in prison, 27% of those are black, brown and racialized people. And in the youth justice system, nearly half of people incarcerated are children of colour. So again, we can see the three things I mentioned earlier, kind of heavier criminalization, more police powers and, you know, more carceral punishments will all impact black, brown and racialized communities the world. Mm, that makes sense. Um, we're going to zoom out in a second and talk about why this bill is happening now. But before we do that, I want to make space for either of you to kind of highlight any other big dangers from the bill or, or changes that the bill will bring about that folks listening might not be aware of. Yeah, so I think although the sort of protest element of the bill has got the largest amount of attention and absolutely understandably and justifiably that is an area of the bill that people have made a huge amount of noise about and have protested about. The bill is massive so it runs over 300 pages long and there are many other sections to it which look to further criminalise many communities in their daily life even if they are not protesting at the time. 
Um, so there is a kind of whole section around the ability for police to seize the property of people in what they call unauthorized encampments, which we know will effectively totally criminalize the way of life of many GRT, Gypsy, Roma and Traveller communities. It allows police to seize their property even if they only suspect that crime is taking place. There are also a number of provisions in there around increasing sentencing for a host of different offences and also getting rid of automatic release from prison so that prisoners will have to undergo much longer custodial sentences. This is happening in a prison system in this country, which is the largest in Western Europe and in which people have been in conditions of near solitary confinement for well over a year now since the lockdowns first came in in March of last year. So we have already overcrowded prisons, prisons where there are already kind of routine human rights abuses taking place. And we're now seeing a bill introduced that says that there's going to be more people in these prisons for longer. And people will have to go before parole boards before they are able to access release and kind of prove that they're no longer a risk. And this becomes automatic for all kinds of offences. Um, so I think it will have an incredibly damaging effect on an already extremely strained and extremely violent prison system that we have in this country. There's provisions around expanding stop and search in there as well. So the introduction of serious violence reduction orders, which basically will function as a kind of personalised section 60. So police will no longer need any kind of suspicion or any kind of justification to stop and search somebody who has been given one of these serious violence reduction orders. And they can be reissued, they can last for up to two years, but they can be reissued indefinitely. So you could have somebody who has been in some way convicted of some kind of offence, even if this means that they were only associated with other people who were involved in an offence, who's then given this kind of reduction order and means that they are able to just be routinely harassed molested, stopped and searched by police anytime they are in public space, potentially indefinitely, and they have absolutely no recourse to be able to resist that. If they talk about their right or their need for police to justify the stop and search in some way, they would in fact be violating that serious violence reduction order. Um, so there's a lot of other kind of provisions like that. The introduction of secure schools, which is in the bill as well, which basically takes the academy model from the education system and moves it into the kind of youth justice space. So these are prisons for 16 to 19 year olds, but that are run by kind of private entities who can apply for and receive charitable status and say that they're running this kind of prison for young people, for children. But because it's educationally focused as a secure school, they can gain charitable status and funding through those kind of things. So there's a, a huge expansion of police and prison power in lots of different directions. And the bill kind of consolidates all of the law and order promises that we've heard from Boris Johnson and Priti Patel ever since they took office and brings it into one kind of massive bill and tries to consolidate that power across these institutions in really frightening ways. And of course, were any of these communities to go and protest and resist the kinds of increasing intrusion of the criminal justice system in their lives, they would then be subject to criminalised restrictions on their right to protest as well because of what else is in the bill that we've spoken about. Wow. So yeah, the, the limits on protest are really just the tip of the iceberg. Sarah, did you want to come in there? Yeah, I mean, I totally echo what Becca has just said. This bill is basically a kind of monster of oppression. Um, and I just wanted to highlight that the protest provisions 
map onto as well the way in which the bill would impact trade union organising and in particular, obviously, the way in which the bill criminalises, you know, making noise. So these sort of noise provisions and public nuisance and also the impact of a protest on organisations in the area would obviously have an impact on picket lines. And I'm also a coordinator of Legal Sector Workers United, which is one of the trade union branches of United Voices of the World. And UVW's also highlighted the impact of the bill on sex workers. So the bill would also introduce the Nordic model into the UK, which would criminalise clients and advertising spaces used by sex workers um, and as a result, put them at greater risk of violence. And one of our members said, and I think this really encapsulates the impact on trade union organising as well as the specific sex work provisions, if our workspaces are criminalised, we cannot organise them. If we have to keep our profession hidden out of fear of legal repression, no collective action is possible to improve working conditions. So that's another aspect of the bill, which I think, again, hasn't necessarily attracted as much attention from a sort of wider campaigning perspective as the protest provisions is obviously significant. And we're just seeing this has such wide reaching effects. And that's why I think people are galvanising around killing the bill because really no amendments are going to make this better. Mm, absolutely. Let's zoom out a little bit and talk about why this bill is happening now. I think that's a really important conversation to have. So this bill has followed obviously major Extinction Rebellion protests in 2019 and then huge protests for Black Lives last year as well. Coming to you first, Sarah, on this, is there a connection there? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I think this forms part of a wider pattern of just extremely authoritarian governance. And obviously, this is something we've seen at various points through history, but I think this bill signals a particularly wide-scale assault on the right to protest and on wider kind of draconian powers. But I think in some ways, the bills kind of come about because these protest movements, and in particular the Black Lives Matter movements, spotlight on police brutality has been really powerful and effective uh, in drawing attention to state violence and in challenging state institutions. And ultimately, this bill is a way of quashing that crucial tool of collective resistance. And so I think that the bill's timing is obviously not coincidental, but it does form part of a wider threat to the right to protest, which has been sort of bubbling along for a while. So this bill came after the HMI CFRS report, which was ordered by the Home Secretary in light of the BLM NXR protests. And that report outlined a need to develop covert intelligence gathering methods, the increased use of facial recognition technology at protests, which we know is discriminatory by design, and which the Court of Appeal has very clearly said breaches privacy rights and equality law. And also the report suggested expanding stop and search powers at protests. So the report sort of signals this wider threat to intelligence gathering and harassment, essentially, of activists and protest organisers. And we've already seen this happen. When our legal observers go to protest, there are, you know, routinely now specific intelligence gatherers with, you know, video equipment. We see facial recognition bans at pretty much every protest now. And we also know that particular activists, and in no uncertain terms, black activists being harassed by the police, being raided by the police, all of that obviously part of this kind of covert intelligence gathering 
strategy. And we've also already seen protesters being treated particularly harshly by the criminal justice system. So in recent weeks, we've seen one uh, pro-Palestine protester being charged with blackmail. We've seen the use of conspiracy as something that people are being charged with for protest-related offences. So all of this comes within a wider context of the criminal justice system coming down extremely hard on protesters, and the bill would basically enable that to go further. So the timing is, you know, yeah, particularly pertinent, but it's kind of already happening in some ways. Thanks for that, Sarah. Becca, same question, but also in our last episode, we spoke about the rise of the culture wars in the UK and how one flashpoint in particular was the removal of statues of colonial figures. This bill, of course, includes new specific punishments for vandalising a statue. Doesn't seem to be a coincidence. So it'd be also great to hear from you why you think the government has made a point to include this. So I think on the first question about, you know, is this in response to protest movements? Absolutely. And in October of 2019, the Metropolitan Police themselves made a submission to the Home Office demanding more powers to suppress peaceful protests. And in February of last year, Cressida Dick, the Met Commissioner, herself said, yes, you know, I have been kind of lobbying government for these powers. And there's a great article um, which people can read entitled Who Dreamt Up the Police Bill, which goes into kind of basically how the police wrote this bill themselves and sort of gave themselves a like Pandora's box of whatever kind of powers they were interested in to deal with all sorts of different social issues and kind of challenges that they come across in policing things and just sort of ask for as many powers as they liked in all these different areas and were granted them in the bill. And I suppose, I mean, the provision around the kind of criminal damage to statues, obviously criminal damage is an existing offence that was there that somebody could have been charged with were they to damage property, including statues. And the massive increase in the sentence for this specific new offence in the bill, uh, which goes up to 10 years if you damage a statue in some way, was certainly a response to the removal and dunking of the Colston statue in Bristol as part of the Black Lives Matter protest last year. We see also, I think, the way in which other parts of the bill, so the kind of unauthorised encampments part of the bill, is a direct response to Extinction Rebellion's use of kind of taking over places in cities and building encampments in which people stay as part of their protest tactics as well. And I think Certainly, there's a culture wars element here. So the ability for the government to sort of nod to the hard right of their already quite hard right sort of electoral coalition and say that they're going to crack down on these kinds of uh, activists who are, you know, erasing history by throwing statues in rivers and things like that is certainly part of what they're doing on a kind of PR level. But I think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that this isn't only operating in the realm of culture because what else is going on in our society? We're seeing um, a massive increase in unemployment. We're seeing many, many people who were already on the breadline before the coronavirus pandemic being even harder hit economically, people in increasing amounts of insecure work, many people in rent arrears, unable to make their rent. There's an evictions ban that kind of keeps on getting delayed from its lifting. But we know that there's a kind of mass economic crisis in terms of employment and people's ability to feed, clothe and house themselves that's kind of already here, but is also about to escalate. And really, I think on that 
kind of material level, the government are telling us this is how we're going to deal with these problems. People who are in desperate situations, people who are increasingly um, economically insecure, who are in increasing amounts of poverty, we are going to absorb them into the criminal justice system. We're going to police them and we're going to put them in prisons. I mean, government has already promised to increase prison places to reach 100,000 prison places by 2026. And so they're really saying that's where we're going to warehouse these people. And we know that obviously these kinds of economic insecurity are themselves racialized. We've seen the way that unemployment figures uh, amongst black people in the UK has gone up at a much higher rate than amongst white people over the course of the coronavirus pandemic. So again, I think there's certainly a ability for them to touch on these kind of culture war issues in what they're doing and responding to that, which they think will drum up their base. And it does, don't get me wrong. But there's also a deeper strategy, I think, in terms of how they're telling us they're going to deal with the sort of social and economic crisis which we're facing. Thanks for that, Becca. So yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about the COVID lockdown restrictions, because again, they're super pertinent here, obviously. Zara, you've you've said that COVID regulations have been used to squash dissent. Can you talk a bit more about that and then how that's connected to the policing bill that we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So what we've seen at protests since um, lockdown started is firstly, the police heavily relying on COVID regulations to break up protests. And there's two things here. The first is that various iterations of the COVID regulations, which have had a kind of blanket ban on public assemblies, obviously, you know, some legitimacy in the fact that there has needed to be a sense of people not gathering publicly because of public health concerns. But the question is, having a criminal response to that rather than a public health response to that has been widely campaigned on. But where there have been iterations of the legislation which have said, you know, yeah, no public gatherings, no public assemblies, it's very clear that that is fundamentally incompatible with the right to protest. Our right to protest is protected under the Human Rights Act, under Articles 10 and 11. And so the fact that protests were effectively being treated as being banned by the police for some periods of time when the COVID regulations sort of implied that enabled the police to essentially break up any protest that they considered to be unlawful under the regulations and the way in which they were doing that was extremely violent. There have also been iterations of the regulations which have had a specific exemption for protests and that exemption basically requires organisers to complete a risk assessment and to obviously comply with sort of social distancing rules and ensuring people are wearing masks and, and things like that. But again, even when there's been the protest exemption, the police still rely on the regulations. They still say, OK, the organisers haven't done the risk assessment properly or this part of the protest doesn't is not covered by the risk assessment. And again, they use the regulations to violently assault people, to um, arrest people and to disperse people from protesting. And so what we've seen under these regulations is a very heavy handed policing response. And that's why. In my view, it's basically emboldened the police to act with impunity on the ground. And even, you know, a couple of days ago, the Met put out a tweet on, I think it was Saturday, basically saying that, uh, you know, we're still in a pandemic. There's a ban on public gatherings. So protests should be happening, even though there's currently a protest exemption. So, again, there's kind of this legal illiteracy around what the regulations do or don't say. 
But I don't think we can rely on police incompetence to explain that. I think all of this is part of the police just doing what they want and being legitimised to do so by the state. The other thing that we've seen, and I think a very key example of how the regulations have been used by the police, is that loads of protesters have been arrested under the COVID regulations. They've been threatened with FPNs, so fixed penalty notices, where they haven't given their details. A lot of them were very violently arrested. And we know that the FPN regime has disproportionately impacted black, brown and racialized communities. We know that a lot of the decisions to impose FPNs on protesters, actually more widely than just protesters, have not actually made it through the criminal justice system because a lot of them have just been so kind of blatantly unlawful. And, you know, for Black Protest Legal Support, what we've witnessed and experienced as well is the police using the COVID regulations to arrest our legal observers. So five of our legal observers were arrested over March and April. And essentially, three of them were people of colour. Three of them were taken to custody and they were quite badly treated in custody. And again, that was purportedly under the COVID regulations. And it took threatening the Met with a judicial review for them to drop all the charges, which only happened uh, a few weeks ago. And obviously, you know, legal observers are there to monitor police conduct and to provide legal support to people who have been assaulted or arrested and violated by the police. And as I've said, you know, we've seen protesters being treated that way under the COVID regulations themselves. And actually, when all five of those legal observers were arrested, and it was on two different days, they were all taking notes of police conduct. So whether it was police arresting protesters or the police kettling protesters, they were visibly taking notes of the police, you know, basically doing things that impacted protesters' rights. And it was at that point that they themselves were arrested. And so for us, that very much showed that the police use the COVID regulations as a way to prevent independent monitoring and scrutiny of them. And that's why these arrests were so egregious. And that's why, you know, what I say is that the police basically feel emboldened to act with impunity under the COVID regulations. And because the language of the regulations, again, is very broad and it affords the police a lot of power to do what they want on the ground, that's why I say it acts as a blueprint for what we would likely see happening all the time with this bill. So it basically would put the sort of power the police have at the moment under the regulations on a legislative footing going forwards after the lockdown ends. Um, so that's why it's so concerning. And that's why, you know, we have to definitely keep mobilising around the bill. Thanks, Sarah. That was super comprehensive and definitely um very terrifying to think of those powers being extended. I want to talk about the government's attitude for a moment, because I know you alluded to it quite a few times there, Sarah. And Becky, you mentioned earlier the fact that this is kind of part of a broader agenda, which is concerned with law and order. It'd be really great to hear more about that from you, Becca, and then bring you in, Sarah. Yeah, so I think we've seen this from day one of Boris Johnson's time as prime minister, even on his first day, he stood on the steps of Downing Street and he promised a law and order approach. He promised 20,000 more police officers. And this has been a kind of flagship part of his entire approach to government before the pandemic and during the pandemic, even in response to it. This is true 
of course, of his appointment of Priti Patel as Home Secretary. And we see that in a number of ways. I mean, I think there's a assumption that because they're Tories, they will always do this. And there is certainly a way in which both Labour and the Tories often kind of draw on law and order approaches. But we saw even with Theresa May that she had a slightly more critical approach to the police and had a slightly antagonistic relationship with the Metropolitan Police, at least. And we've seen that completely done away with. There's now a kind of very triumphantly, proudly law and order approach. And across the board, this is kind of done totally unapologetically. And the police bill, I think, is a kind of the climax of all of that rhetoric over the past several months that has come together in this kind of bumper bill. And it's something which I think it serves, as I said, both the sort of culture war role in terms of being able to excite their base and show that they're doing something and cracking down on things that people understand as problems within their communities, or just problems that they kind of receive and hear about in media that they consume. But it also allows them to absorb people who are at the sharp end of economic and social crises in this country. And the expansion of prison places, for example, so the increase of our already bloated prison population to a projection of 100,000 people being kept in prisons by 2026 is a result, and the government themselves has said this, of the hiring of those 20,000 new police officers. And of course, with introduction of legislation like the policing bill, the introduction of new crimes, longer sentences for existing offences, and keeping people in prison for longer. So there's a real expectation and aspiration here that they're going to be keeping tens and hundreds of thousands of people in cages in which people are suffering, at least at the moment, often conditions of solitary confinement. I mean, it's, I think, a really central part of their kind of wider strategy. And it's one that I think we have to pay attention to as a core part of any governmental strategy alongside what they might do with education and what they might do with health. And certainly we see an increasing intrusion of the criminal justice system and criminal justice type approaches in education and health settings and elsewhere in the economy. Um, And that's true also in this bill. So I think it's a kind of core and central part of how they understand their role and how they understand their sort of strategy for governance. And it's something which we would all do well to pay attention to and understand it as something absolutely central to how we're being governed and how they're organizing society. Mm. Zara, I want to bring you in on that as well. And specifically, there are other pieces of legislation which have been proposed or voted on, including the so-called spy cops bill and the creation of protest-free areas, etc. Can you talk about those other proposals and whether they're part of this larger trend that Becca is mentioning that we need to be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's also, you know, I mentioned the report earlier that sort of beckoned this bill. And I think there's this idea of targeting activists and organisers and suppressing voices that are challenging the state. Um, I mean, that's what's happening. And ultimately, all of this is a way of distracting from the real issues that, you know, we want to be organising and talking about, which is, you know, systemic state violence and particularly violence that impacts black, brown and racialized communities. And I think really, you know, you see something like the bill's focus on, in inverted commas, serious harm that protests cause. I mean, really, the focus should be on the serious harm that the government's causing. And I think, you know, the very language of the bill. uh, So I know I've said that, you know, it's very broad and it's open to interpretation. But 
using words like criminalizing disruption, criminalizing impact or unease or distress or making an offense, a new offense for public nuisance. All of that really goes to the very heart of what a protest is and goes to the very heart of, you know, what Becca was saying earlier about the most effective ways of challenging state power. And I think that's really what we're seeing through all of this kind of legislative architecture of what's happening at the moment. And I think, you know, with the spy cops bill, we're seeing that mirrored as well in provisions in the report, such as trying to label people aggravated activists. So very much infiltrating and targeting specific groups. And we know which groups they're going to be. They're going to be groups that are predominantly black led groups that highlight or amplify the voices of people who are challenging state power. We know it's going to be activists who undertake direct action. And so all of that is an effort to essentially suppress powerful voices in sort of the resistance, I guess. And I think it's really important to note that it's not just about the sort of violence of the language of the bill, but it's also about the violence on the ground and what we're seeing at the moment. And I really want to emphasise that. I know I've mentioned it earlier, but really what this comes with and this particular type of authoritarianism will also be coupled with immense amounts of police violence. And we're seeing that at protests already. We've seen children being hit by riot police at Free Palestine protests. We've seen so many assaults, very serious assaults at BLM and Free Palestine protests. And of course, at Kill the Bill protests as well. We saw immense violence in Bristol. So I think, you know, we have to be very conscious that the government's efforts at the moment are not just you know, sort of happening in a vacuum in Parliament and through legislation. It's having a material impact on people on the ground, on people's safety. And that's something that, you know, we really need to build more awareness and solidarity around because actually it's extremely unsafe for lots of protesters at the moment. And we know that the level of police violence and the level of harassment has led to some black protesters and organisers releasing statements a few months ago saying, they can't go to the Kill the Bill protests because they're so worried about how extensively the police are targeting them. So they're already pushing dissent in that way. And I think all of that really is to say that, yes, this is a really important movement and killing the bill is, is really fundamental because of all of the issues we've outlined, but it really can't end there. And that's why I think conversations around police abolition and prison abolition and border abolition are integral to the strategy that should come with making sure that we resist this bill, because without it, you know, the same problems are going to persist because we're seeing it now before the bills become law. We've seen it historically. And so it will exist even if we do kill the bill. So I think all of those things need to be joined up as a response to how the government is currently making these very kind of draconian moves. Brilliant. Just to follow on then, Zara, before we wrap up by talking about some of the incredible pushback and resistance that there's been, which you alluded to there, could you just clarify for us where the policing bill is at now in terms of going through the process of becoming a law, which stage it's reached and some of the kind of disruptions along that journey as well, and what's going to happen next? Yeah, so the bill is currently at committee stage. Um, So in the House of Commons, it's had two readings and it passed both readings. And the Public Bill Committee is expected to report on the bill by the 24th of June. 
but it's been quite quiet in terms of sort of what that might look like. The bill's been carried into the 2022 session. So we're not sure how quickly things are going to actually move. And obviously, we know that the government was very much trying to kind of pass this extremely speedily. And to some extent, the protests that have happened have been fundamental in delaying that. But that doesn't mean that it's completely stalled. Um, It's still very much on track in some ways. After committee stage, it will go to the Lords. And so there'll be a kind of back and forth between the Commons and Lords. And there'll probably be some amendments at that stage. And we're also seeing the Joint Committee of Human Rights. um, They've been taking evidence on the bill, so scrutinising the legislation. And they're due to produce a report based on the evidence that they've obtained, written evidence and oral evidence sessions on the bill. And so we'll see where that goes. But ultimately, you know, the thing is, is that as I've kind of alluded to earlier, amendments are not going to fix what is fundamentally a sort of racist, classist and authoritarian piece of legislation. And that's why the movement has been called Kill the Bill. And so we've seen protests at each sort of stage, but definitely there's a sense that, you know, mobilisation needs to pick up once, you know, there's amendments or further discussion around the bill, because there have been loads of protests recently about lots of different important issues. And it's understandable that sometimes with these movements, they sort of lose momentum. And I think that's why keeping this conversation going and amplifying the key messages around it is really important because otherwise it will go through without that scrutiny, you know, if it does anyway. And obviously there's huge concern that it might do because of the Tory majority. There needs to be some thinking about what comes next and what the resistance looks like then. Absolutely. So let's finish then by talking about the resistance, what it looks like at the moment. Becca, who's been leading the charge in trying to kill the bill and what have they slash you achieved so far? Well, we've seen some really exciting stuff that's been really effective and was pulled together with such short notice. So, I mean, when this bill first was sort of announced and went into the public domain, I went on a couple of radio shows to talk about it. And the only provision in the bill that I was asked to speak about on those shows was that it introduced criminal sanctions for sports coaches who had um, romantic and sexual relationships with people who were in their care and was 16 to 18 years old. That was the only thing that anybody wanted to talk about. Nobody was talking about the protest element. Nobody was talking about the expansion of stop and search, the racism of the bill, the dangers of the bill. So even the fact that we now call it the policing bill and that people have such wide recognition of it, in my mind, has been a huge kind of victory for people's agitating around it and informing people around them and in their communities about what's going on. There was also, after the murder of Sarah Everard, There was a vigil held just after the kind of news about her came out and police responded very heavily to that vigil, throwing people who were protesting to the ground with some very kind of striking images that came out of it. And in response to that, Sisters Uncut, who had been one of the main kind of organisations involved in that vigil, then went on to organise a series of protests day in, day out for about a week. And we saw after that a kind of reticence on the government's part that they delayed this bill, which they had wanted to just kind of push through very quickly. They went on to delay it. We also saw, I think, crucially, that the Labour Party, who had originally planned to abstain on the bill, they changed their position after these events and said that they were going to vote against it. Although, as Sarah talked about regarding the amendments, 
We've seen the introduction of quite frightening amendments from Labour MPs, things like introducing a Nordic model and the suggestion that misogyny should be made a hate crime. So there's also this suggestion there that actually if Labour MPs get the amendments they want, they're quite happy to support it. But anyway, I think that was another huge victory in getting them to turn around their position when they were quite happy to quietly let it go through. Since then, we've seen a number of groups. So there was a kind of number of different sort of formations and coalitions that were formed to fight to kill the bill. We've seen obviously protests that went on for many, many days in Bristol with people kind of taking on quite militant tactics that got a lot of attention. There've been repeated protests across the country. The last one that I know of was on May 29th. There was a May Day protest where There was a protest in London, but also in 40 different locations across the UK. And that was, you know, organized by a broad range of different community groups, organizations, unaffiliated activists who are coming from all quarters who will be affected by this bill. And I think that's one of the most crucial things is that the bill is frightening in its scope and very draconian in its scope. But it's also there is an opportunity there because there are so many different groups and communities that are attacked by this bill. There is an opportunity there for kind of mass organizing and solidarity to be mounted to say that the bill must go in its entirety and to make sure that we stand in solidarity with any other group who remains affected by portions of the bill that those in power still want to go through. So there is a lot of scope there for resistance. And when we see, you know, the scale of protest that was organized in the first place around the bill, the unrelenting, you know, continued protests that people have been organizing week in, week out, even in the midst of a global pandemic. And when we saw that just within a week or 10 days, when Sisters Uncut did day in, day out of protesting, that there were those two key kind of changes, both on the government side and on the opposition side, there's certainly scope there for us to continue fighting this bill and to get the entire thing scrapped. Um, And as Zara said, you know, if we're in a situation with a kind of very large majority, government majority, and if it does go through, there are many, many of those organizations in one of those coalitions, I know at least, who say that their kind of next task is to make the bill ungovernable and unenforceable, even if it does go through, because there's many ways that we can continue to stand in solidarity and fight its effects as these evictions of GRT communities may go ahead or as increased racist stop and search goes ahead. We can still organize amongst ourselves to be able to resist those things, even if it becomes law. So there's a huge amount of work to be done, but we have the opportunity to make some victories in that as well. Yeah, and and of course continue to build on the incredible victories that have already been achieved. That was really really great to hear that all that amazing work's been done. Thanks so much Becca and for your role in it, which I know has not been small. Zara, I want to come to you for the last word on this. What can listeners do to make sure this bill never becomes a law? Are there things we can do? And in particular, are there any legal options that we have to block the bill and are they worth pursuing? Yeah, so I think from my perspective, despite the job that I do, I think that the law can be very limited um, in a way that our collective resistance isn't. And so I think really this battle needs to be fought and won on the streets. So I think continuing to show up to protests, continuing to organise, continuing to use these kind of fundamental tools to resist state um, suppression is crucial. And I totally echo what Becca said about how groups like Sisters Uncut, Black Lives Matter UK, people who've been sort of part of this coalition and leading the charge, as well as trade unions now, it's really important that we sort of 
lend our solidarity and support and be a fundamental part of those organising tools. I think also we have to think about it from a kind of internationalist and anti-imperialist perspective as well. And we're seeing very violent crackdowns on protest rights across the world. So from Nigeria to Palestine to Colombia, protesters being violently assaulted, even murdered by the state. And I think joining up those movements as well is really crucial. And we've seen that with the Colombia-Palestine solidarity protests. We're seeing that a lot within the trade union movement. And so I think it's really important that that is also an element that's kind of added to the wider struggle. In terms of legal options, I think if the bill becomes law, and I think that if we are seeing, as kind of Becca suggested, people mobilise in such a way to make the bill kind of unmanageable to implement, there are also ways to challenge that from a legal perspective. So whether that's challenging particular charging decisions, whether that's challenging the sort of crux of the legislation itself and its compatibility with our human rights uh, under Articles 10 and 11. And so I think there are routes to sort of use the law to sort of chip away um, at the sort of broader system um, and to chip away at the way in which the bill might be used. But I think in order to kind of entirely dismantle it, it really comes from the collective resistance and the movement that is, you know, obviously extremely well built already, but that will, I'm sure, continue to grow over the coming months and possibly years as we see this legislation being dealt with. So really, I think it's just to encourage people to get involved in the key protest groups that are organising around this struggle, to join your union and to be part of kind of the union level struggle on this, to join kind of local groups and groups taking kind of direct action and resisting things happening kind of in your area, using the power of protest and to sort of amplify those voices of people who are most sharply impacted by this legislation and wider forms of state power. Fantastic. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me and taking us through that. It was super, super comprehensive and really, really helpful for listeners. I'm sure that everyone like me will now be feeling kind of empowered and encouraged by the amazing work that's going on to kill this bill. Sadly, that is all we've got time for this week. Uh, lovely listeners of the weekly economics podcast first to you Sarah Hassan thank you for being with us if people want to find out more about your work where can they go what should they read so I would definitely recommend following black protest legal support on twitter following legal sector workers united so our trade union and definitely engaging with the work of groups like sisters uncut and black lives matter uk so yeah definitely sort of those groups are there and are definitely keen for more people to be helping organize within them Perfect. And Becca Hudson, same question. Thank you again for being with us. If people want more Becca Hudson, how can they do that? If they want more of me, they can follow me on Twitter at Becca with a K underscore SH, although I very rarely tweet. But I would really recommend going to the website of one organisation I'm working with at the moment, the Forefront Project, because they have an explainer on their website, particularly about how the bill will affect young working class black people who's really the kind of most of their membership and the young people that they work with. And they've sort of thought up what the implications of the bill will be on their lives. So if people want to find out more about that aspect, I really encourage going there. That's the forefrontproject.org. Brilliant. Lots of great links for listeners to pursue. That is it for today's Weekly Economics podcast. We'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. 
I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. 